This is the Bethel Business Podcast, brought to you by the Bethel Chamber of Commerce in Bethel, Connecticut, and produced by Smith Douglas Associates. Hello, and welcome to the Bethel Business Podcast again. We're here with Matt Bartelmi from Bart's Tree Services. Hi, how you doing? Tell me, how long has this business been here? We've been doing this about 15 years, uh, pretty much now. It started out as kind of a, a part-time venture, and I'm a bit of a corporate dropout. So I uh, used to work for Pitney Bowes a long time ago and did 15 years or so there. And really just came about from having to cut some trees down at my own house over in Candaway area. And, uh, you know, I was always good with a chainsaw from firewood perspective back in the day and uh, growing up with my dad we did a lot of that type of stuff but you know the removing of the trees was a whole nother uh, thing and uh, with that it was funny because my dad had some old like AT&T you know pole climbing belt and some spikes and I would go up the tree a little bit and you know my knees are knocking put a rope in it so I could get a mechanical advantage to pull something over or whatnot but then it got to a point where there was one I knew was way outside of my skill level and would have probably crushed my house if I tried to do anything. And my father-in-law at the time had a friend of his that climbed trees quite a bit, so I had him come over. And I remember he went up this thing like a monkey. I was just mesmerized by this. I'm like, wow, I gotta like learn how to do some of this a little bit better. And really, it was just friends from that point heard, oh, you cut some trees out of your house? Oh, you gotta come help me in my house. So it wound up being like a couple weekends a month, you'd go do a little bit of it, and you started making a little bit of money on the side. It was quite nice. And then. Uh, I wound up just diving in and trying to, back then it was a little tough because trying to get information and books about arboriculture, there was not a lot out there. Um, so you're learning a lot of books about tying knots and rigging, but it's more nautical. So I wound up getting in with, we have the ISA, which is International Society of Arboriculture, and we have the TCIA, which is the Tree Care Industry Association. Those are the two global entities for arborists and arboriculture. And they work very well together. One is more centric towards the business side and one is more towards the employee side and individual skill level. So going to like some of their conferences and getting in and joining them, that just opened up the massive amount of knowledge base that I could tap into. And especially for me, you know, there's only so much you could read, but when you go see something and at these conferences, they'd actually bring a tree inside and cable it up and go through all of these different rigging scenarios and the, the latest and greatest equipment and you know safety practices and things of that nature. So that really uh, got me excited at that point and, and seeing that and doing that and being able to bring that back. Um, and at the time, I left Pitney Bowes and I went to do consulting for about five years. So I was flying all over the world doing that. And it worked out really well that towards the end, I was mainly working in California, the nuclear power plants. So the time difference worked out well where I'd still get up on East Coast time I'd make all my phone calls back to customers that called at that time. And by now I had a crew of like four guys uh, that were going out pretty much all the time. So it worked out really well. And I would uh, do all my work out in California. Then I'd fly out on Monday, fly home on Thursday. So then it was like Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I'd be running around crazy doing quotes and checking on everything and then writing up all the work orders and detailing all the maps of what they need to do on the job site and leaving it for them. So Monday they could go start the process again. So I did that for a couple of years and it uh, got to a point where I was actually kind of losing money going consulting versus the tree business. So I was like, all right, take this leap of faith and uh, jumped into it at that point. And it was really nice back then because I always had a lot of computer savviness and quite a bit of marketing with the Pitney Bowes side being a supply chain manager. So I had a lot of that going on and being able to apply that. Plus, I was a, a 
the global supply chain, the quality manager for like six years. So it was all about quality. So just taking some of those corporate learnings and principles and applying it back to my small little business really set us aside or way above most of the other tree care folks around here. So nowadays we kind of call them there's tree guys and you know what you're more your landscaper maybe up and coming you know most of them have good intentions they just don't have the skill set and the training behind them or the insurance or any of these other things like that mm -hmm. so it's uh and then there's the arborists so you know we're the ones that have gone through an extensive amount of training and have to every year continue that training and maintain a certain amount of ceus to stay uh above board with our licensing and credentials and certifications um and then i've taken it kind of a next step even above that so Around here, we have the big corporate entities like Save-A-Tree and Bartlett, which are, you know, multi-million dollar organizations, and we're just a small, you know, little seven-man crew here, but we have all, even more of the certifications and training and uh, more of a holistic approach to pesticide application and things of that nature than even those big corporate entities. So that really cuts us out into like a niche market around here, um, and then as of late, we've gotten a lot bigger and better of equipment, so... All along, it's been it's difficult in the state of Connecticut because you, from a licensing perspective, legally anybody can cut a tree down. There is no license required whatsoever for removal of a tree, unless it's something on a state road or town property, things of that nature. But residential-wise, anybody can do it. So we have all these guys around town that have a chainsaw, and they go out, and you're trying to compete with them price-wise. But the big thing is most of them don't have liability insurance, or some do have liability, which is fairly inexpensive. And it's like million dollars of liabilities probably only going to cost you fifteen hundred dollars for the year but it's the workman's comp that's really bad because now you're paying usually starting out you're going to be in the high 30 percentile on your workman's comp so if you pay a hundred dollars of payroll you got to pay 38 dollars of that extra out to cover your insurance so if you've got several people on payroll it's very costly so around here you know let's use the danbury area for example we've got you know, probably 350 tree guys, we would call them, from the landscaper up, depending on what level of skill they have. And then out of the arborists, there are, you know, we probably have about eight uh, that are licensed Connecticut arborists. And then above that, we have what's an ISA, the International Society of Arboriculture, uh, certified arborist. So I'm one of those as well. So that's even above the state licensing program to really put our credentials up there. So our competition and overhead structure is immensely different. Obviously, I've got you know bricks and mortar here for rent. I've got the payroll. I've got the workman's comp, all that. So always trying to price against some of those lower guys is difficult, whereas of late, I've got a lot of bigger equipment now where some of these smaller jobs that they would be able to beat us by $100 or something like that. Now, we can do it much cheaper than because I just like pick the whole tree up with a crane and put it in the chipper, and we're literally out of there in 15 minutes, that type of thing. So... That's the thing that's coming to fruition now that's it's working out well for us that we have the, the high level of skill and the equipment needed to go out and do a lot of that. And then our biggest area now that we're working on is going forward uh, is the plant health care. So we call that the PHC. So that's the chemical side of things. So we know environmentally we don't want to be spraying all kinds of chemicals around the environment and they have all kinds of byproducts that can come from that or effects of other insects that we want to keep around. You know, there's a lot of talk right now around beehive decline and the impacts of pesticide on that and some of the possible misuses of uh, what's called neonicotinoids, a certain type of chemical that's a derivative from tobacco, basically. And we've really, we still, we try to use some organics, but a lot of times the organics are just not that effective. 
So we've taken a shift where we're still using some of these chemicals. Now there's different levels or grades of chemicals. So if you have like a warning level, that's only in the middle grade of hazardness and it can go all the way up and down that spectrum to something that you need all kinds of coverage. You don't want it to touch you at all and it's very hazardous to you. So we only use things that have a warning level. So usually not very toxic uh, by any means. Um, and then the big thing that we do different is how we apply that. So old school way is this broad spectrum foliar sprays where they're just spraying hundreds of gallons of uh, chemical up through the air all over these trees so it's a foliar uh, application and the bugs come in contact with it they die where we don't do really any of that at all uh, we do mostly all systemics so we are going to either inject the tree itself kind of like an IV a human would get so now the chemical it's a slightly higher dosage of the same chemical but it'll go inside and stays with inside the tree for a long-term residual. So we could use like emerald ash borer beetle, for an example, which is sweeping through our area, killing every one of the ash trees now. So with that, we can go and inject a tree with emimectin benzoate. It'll stay in the tree for a little over two years. So anytime they try to drill a hole and lay their eggs inside, which normally will kill that tree once they start feeding within three years, now the tree will thrive and live. And we've had even a lot of them around here where they've been 50% infested and we still get them to come back and survive. So, but there's no chemicals outside the tree anywhere. It's all contained within the trunk. There's no residual anywhere. So the other one we do is like bark drenches or soil drenches where it's applied right at the tree. So that's kind of the, the different mode that we've taken where sure it's not fully organic, but our approach is much more healthy for the environment, the people, the, you know, your, especially pets and whatnot in the, in the yard. And that's kind of where I really love being uh, going to meeting with all of our different constituents and we go to so many different meetings with DEP and the town and towns and CTPA and things of that nature. So it's uh, you get more you're from the learning side to where now you're starting to pioneer the industry or help pioneer some of it. And that's what really excites me there and meeting with all these you know great minds and whatnot all the time. What are some of the blights and pests that you're seeing coming through Connecticut lately? Well, as I mentioned, you have the emerald ash borer beetle is a big one right now. So if anybody is not doing preservation of a tree now, I mean, within six years, they're all going to be gone. So that's probably the biggest one. Uh, we had a big spread of gypsy moth that hasn't really come into Danbury too much yet, but it started last year out in like uh, the eastern Connecticut old lime and everything out in that way. It's made its way all the way up to, uh, we do a lot of work for the uh, Army Corps of Engineers in Middlebury at all of their dam sites. So those areas were hit really bad by gypsy moss this last year, and it's probably going to permeate into Danbury area soon. But the good news is many, we, everybody thinks back to like the 70s when we had those huge gypsy moth outbreaks. You couldn't even walk anywhere. It was just gross. Where there was a fungus introduced that actually attacks the eggs and brought that population way down to where it's just these small little outbreaks. But last year really went up quite a bit because we had such a drought the year before. So that fungus did not get to spread and permeate and attack any of these egg sacs that were out there everywhere. So it let that population really grow. So what we've seen this year, we had a big outbreak again early spring, but now we've had so much rain that we're starting to see the population kind of die off early. So we're gonna keep our fingers crossed that that has a very positive impact. Otherwise, what we're doing now is proactively, uh, you know, a tree can, mostly oak trees and maples that we see affected by the gypsy moth, uh, they could take some defoliation from all the eating that they do, maybe one or two years, but if it continues for several years, it can really stress a tree and kill it. So 
like this September, we start doing tree injections for uh, chemicals to go inside the tree. They stay there. So as soon as the leaves bloom in the spring, they have a little bit of that chemical in them. And as soon as the inch or the caterpillar tries to go and bite it, they die. So the trees can survive and stay foliated. So that's something we're starting to do a lot of this uh, September. The other thing is going to be that we have a lot of stuff going on for, what is it, fire blight or fungal outbreaks on a lot more of your fruit tree and ornamental fruit trees that are out there. So your cherry trees, some of your different apple trees, pear trees. So that was a big one, again, with some of those rain cycles that we have that really propagate those mold spores or the fungal spores everywhere. So there's some spraying regimens that we do early, early spring that we have to protect those buds as soon as they're opening that's when they get attacked so and then they kill off and brown off all the leaves on that stem and usually kill that stem so we're usually doing an application of it's basically just a copper spray so um, it just the copper creates an acidic condition that fungus does not like so really a healthy approach you know, but can save a lot of these ornamental probably this year especially in Bethel area we saw a tremendous amount of um, the Japanese flowering cherries those were really impacted quite bad by that so those are probably the bigger ones we have. And then there's some little spotty things that we see here and there that we can take a look at. And most of the time with these, that's where we tell people too, to, you know, we can usually see things because we have so much training. You know, as soon as I walk in somebody's yard, I immediately look at anything that's hazardous or I see a, a little tiny outbreaking of insects. But usually by the time a customer sees it, there's a lot of outbreak. It's already gone on for six months or eight months. So with our plant healthcare things, we have a lot of it where we have you know, tell people, call us, let's go inspect your yard. You can even put us on an inspection regimen. Some of the bigger estates and things of that nature, we go once a month and we walk the whole grounds. Because if I see something small, I can do a little spot treatment and we never get to that situation where now half the tree looks like it's dying or declining or stressed, things of that nature. So we really try to take a proactive approach and that kind of coincides with our chemical things that we do where the old school methodology was just every spring spray copious amounts of chemicals everywhere, which is very good for a tree company's pocketbook, but not the best thing for the environment. Where, you know, we'd rather have you pay us a small little nominal fee. We can inspect everything uh, on a regiment quarterly or whatever it may be. And then if it's a spot treatment, a lot of times it's very inexpensive to, you know, because it's such a small area that we have to treat, right? But we have also seen, and that's where it's funny that with the weather patterns, the impact they have. So we've got a whole a big thing we've been seeing probably for the last two or three years now is called needle cast as well. So on your conifers, you'll see that usually it's the lower branches, they start to brown out and it's a fungus again. So it's usually the area that does not get a lot of sunlight or not a lot of airflow. If it's a, a tree that's densely populated with other trees around it versus a tree that's out in the middle of a field that gets great airflow. So when it rains, dries the needles out nice and fast, the fungus can't propagate quite as fast. Where the ones that are in a shaded area, you'll see they just brown up really bad on the bottom. And then last year, the white pines, which usually are fairly resilient for needle cast, all of a sudden were just browning. The whole tree was just browning out. And this year we're seeing a lot of it as well and just dying within like two months. So we've taken a lot of samples and worked with the Connecticut Experiment Station down in New Haven through DEP. The scientists down there found out they actually had this whole new thing. We we're calling it um, white pine decline. So it's still needle casp, which is usually like phytorosoria type fungus, but now it's got three different funguses that are attacking it all at the exact same time. So it's just like hybrid, and it's because we had so much rain for the you know the springtime. So you know that's where these weather patterns are starting to create some of these. Like I said, it, it was good in some cases for fighting off the gypsy moths, but it's bad for the conifer trees and what's going on for that. 
So we're always kind of seeing these new things coming up where, again, invasives that are being brought from other countries is really probably our, our number one problem, like the emerald ash borer beetle. So climate change is something you're keeping an eye on. Yeah, and well, it keeps us on our toes because we get out there sometimes and you're looking at something, you're like, I think it's this, and I'm scratching my head, something's a little different. You know, and that's usually where we'll take samples and we send them off to go under the microscope. And, you know, that's where every now and then we find something new is appearing that we didn't know, or it's from another area that we've never seen before. Mm -hmm. So, and that's where the, the big thing for us is great too, because we have such a huge network of arborists all over the place and most of these aren't right here and even the guys in Connecticut there's probably 10 of them 15 of them you know not too far from here but we're good friends and we share information ask questions and we don't really compete with each other much you know and even some of the guys in Danbury it's just a good close network and we'd be like hey are you seeing something over here what's going on with this or you know share some uh, findings or whatnot so it's a good network. So when should people call you besides Hurricane Sandy there's 50 trees in my yard? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's our, our, the big one. But it's funny because even from the storm now, our, one of the other big ones that's really coming up is as soon as somebody's buying a house now, they want uh, not only the home inspection, but they want a yard inspection. And I think so many people had so many struggles after the hurricane and insurance woes and things of that nature uh, from all the carnage that now everybody's a little more educated and looking at we've had where they actually write a tree in on the and it's escrowed uh, for the closing. So if the tree is not removed, the house is not sold and things of that nature, if it's a hazardous or some monstrous tree of, of that nature. So, you know, we're starting to see some changes like that. But for calling us, I mean, it's really any time. And the thing we tell people, again, to try to be a little more proactive versus reactive, you know, even if we just come out in the spring and do an assessment, you know, we, we have a bunch that comes out on our blog and our newsletter that we put out every month is you're getting ready to come out and have barbecues and this and that. There's a lot of damage that could have occurred from winter and whether it's hanging branches or things that have fractured or uh, we have what's called like frost cracks where trees actually split from the cold weather. So it can create some very hazardous conditions out there where people could be hurt. You know, we say that's probably the number one thing is, is we're just getting ready to go out into our yards from the winter is just call for an assessment. We can walk through, look at everything. And there's many things that may be dangerous or going to be, they're dying, but you know, I can tell people that, you know, that's going to be an issue, but you probably have three or four years before it really becomes an issue. You can keep an eye on it, monitor. There may be some remediation things we could do to make it a little safer now. So, you know, it's not usually going in and, you know, cutting everything down type of thing. So we want to work to educate the consumer. And then, you know, it's not my decision to say we're going to cut something down. I need to just give you the information and based on your tolerance of risk, and what objects this tree or parts of the tree may hit, you can make the determination what you want to do. What do you do with the trees you take down? Many different things. We have, we do firewood, so we take quite a few of the logs back to firewood. We're very selective about that, so we kind of have very premium grade, I guess you would call it. So it's all, you know, oak and hickory and uh, things of ash, that nature. We have quite a bit of it where the hickory and the cherry and the apple, everybody wants that for barbecue wood, <laughs> for smoking meats. So we do have a couple of suppliers and a couple of stands that come and take a quite a bit of that for that. We chip quite a bit of it. I mean, that was one of the things for us too, is especially some of the waste wood that you don't want to get rid of. We have to take that to some of these processing areas uh, like ferrous mulch, uh, where they'll grind up all the logs and just turn it into mulch. And it's basically, they add dye to it and a fungicide and you buy it back as mulch to put in your garden. It looks all pretty. 
but for disposal of the logs, we have to pay to dispose of them. So that was one of the reasons we bought a, a larger wood chipper. So we have this 185 horsepower chipper that handles up to 20 inch diameter wood that can go through it. So pine trees versus me having to take a bunch of these logs and pay for it, getting rid of them. We'll just shred them all right into wood chips. Um, and then we have, uh, we call it the chip list. So there's people in you know all of Fairfield County that want wood chips for usually a garden or something of that nature. So we kind of have that on a map. And when we're in that area, we drop them off for free and give them to them and uh, things of that nature. So it's usually either going to be everything gets chipped, the logs get taken out and disposed of, or we turn it into firewood. That's kind of the three paths uh, that come out of that. So you said you're a seven-person group. How do you find new employees? How do you find the next generation of arborists? That is very difficult. But the good thing now is, you know, we, we have a college, Paul Smith's, up in by Lake Placid area in New York, which really was, they're, they're the premier arboriculture, forestry type uh, organization. They, we've now seen many of the colleges, even local colleges, starting to put more forestry programs in. So we're getting a lot more students coming out that are interested in this and educating on it, which is very, very good. The thing is, we have quite a few people that, I've got like two young guys that we're probably going to bring in from an entry-level standpoint, kind of groom them to come all the way up. But trying to get somebody who already is, uh, you know, has licensing or has extensive amount of training in a bucket truck or especially climbing and the rigging principles that we have, that is quite difficult to find somebody. So, you know, we, we sponsor the uh, annual New England climbing competition. So we just had that up in New Milford. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a great event. And the real fun thing there was we had, you know, typically it was always a bunch of guys. But now we've got that event. I think we had five women competing. Um, there was two twin sisters in the uh, uh, class that was up in the, like, 40-year-olds. And they did fantastic. And then the really cool thing was there was two younger ladies that were in their early 20s. And they did better than most of the guys there in all the competitions. So, I mean, they're really... Uh, doing a great job and we're seeing that even with the uh, we go to like the isa showdown in washington dc that brings in people from all over the world so right now the world champions are like scandinavian and seeing that one there will go they'll they'll be like 30 women competing in that um and a lot of younger people so you try to tap into those events that you know you're there people see you set up a stand and talk to them the other thing is we're looking at doing some internship type programs with some of the colleges to see what we can you know bring people through on that. But that probably is one of our biggest challenges now is getting people with really good experience. And it's not that old school tree guy mentality. It's some of the, you know, we want the, the, the sciences applied uh, and the methodologies of the modern techniques applied. This sounds like it's a relatively dangerous business. Right. Um, well, we're grouped in uh, with the forestry program, so that's logging. Mm-hmm. So logging does have a pretty high death rate in their industry. And because we're grouped with it from an insurance coding perspective yes that's true but arboriculture is very very different i mean we have a lot of things you know that they don't have as well so we've got power lines electricity but we also go through an extensive amount of training uh, for that like we're they call it ehap electrical hazard protection so we're certified and all my guys are certified in that so we can identify you know the different wires and know our minimum approaches and what tools we can use near or around or even the environmental conditions that we can be near or around wires so we do have some a lot more infrastructure to work around and hazards that way but I think, you know, kind of working on these cliffs with giant logs rolling around everywhere is definitely a little different. But we're starting to see some changes with that as well, where typically we have in the last, I'd say in the last 10 years, we've had more advancement in arboriculture. 
than we've ever seen in the last 50 years. And it's the two associations really working together. We've come up with the, we have the ANSI standards that we have to conform with. We've made more updates and even added whole new standards or subsets to the standards in the last five to 10 years and ever. And now that's also being broken out to where the OSHA standards, which are very umbrella, we get kind of pulled into what construction coding do you use or areas does it apply or what forestry, so it doesn't fit us. So now OSHA is under development of actually putting that all together to have uh, you know, a very specific arboriculture spec that's going to come out for uh, the, all the safety principles. A lot of it's going to use the ANSI principles they have now, uh, and they're working very closely with the associations, the ISA and the uh, TCIA on that. So that, that's kind of exciting as well to kind of make the industry safer. And then, I mean, the thing we do see, I get the publications every month for, we have a, let's um, like a mortality report for, or injury mortality report that comes out. And it's not 100% accurate because they're basically grabbing things off of any news feed anywhere that popped up. So I'm sure it's a, a sample set of really what the data is. Um, and typically what we see is it's, the, and they break out two ways. They have it where it's tree companies or tree employees that were injured versus you know homeowners so the larger percentage is the tree company people that are hurt and then the other thing we find is and we talk about this all the time is complacency so it's usually never your young guys because they're scared as you should be and that's we kind of joke around that when you get a young guy come in and he acts like he's not scared or talks like he's not scared of anything he's going to be the first one i fire because he's dangerous you need to be scared a little bit all the time that keeps you aware and on point for what's going on and keeps your fellow employees all safe so usually what we find statistically, it's the guy who's my age, who's the, you know, in his 40s, has been in the business a long time, and you start to get a little complacent and think you know things, and that's when a mistake happens that can get you hurt or killed ultimately. So that's where we, especially here, we, we try to make sure that we have reoccurring uh, training all the time. Even if it's the same subject, we just want to get it back in everybody's face, keep dotting the I's over and over so we have a uh, weekly training meeting that's in depth for an hour where we pick a subject and go through it and we also have a tracking sheet where we have any incidents or we call them near misses that we bring back in and we talk about that and elaborate how we can avoid those are there different tool sets we could use different procedures we should implement or uh, how we do things um, and then even before we do a, what's called a, like a tailgate review for safety so every morning when you're at the job you're going to get your work orders you look at that and then you're gonna have a quick little five minute recap of some, you know, could be how to start a chainsaw. It could be, you know, identifying hazards in the yard, a 360 review of the tree, if anything like that. So that's where we just try to keep pounding in everybody's head all the time. So it keeps it fresh and alert and you know, we don't want that complacency that gets people hurt. How do you attract clients? How do you find customers? Um, I mean, that's changed a little bit. In the beginning, it was easy because I was actually a webmaster, I guess you call it, back in Pitney Bowes days. And I mean, that was when the internet was just coming out in the early 90s. So I knew how to make websites and HTML and, you know, nothing very robust. But so I was like the only guy that had a website when I first started the tree business. Mm -hmm. It was me and Bartlett and, you know, they had a little site. So we, that just did everything for me. I didn't even bother with like phone book or anything of that nature. And then it was really just the fact that I think applying the quality principles that I wanted to this company really set us aside from everybody else. So then the word of mouth really worked well and the referrals coming out of that. 
you know, I always tell my guys, I'm like, most of these people have no idea if you're good at doing tree work other than don't smash their fence, don't hit their house with anything, and the tree's gone when you leave. But what they can tell is, is the yard a mess when you leave? Because most guys around here, they just leave chips everywhere, little branches. So my thing was, I want everything, right. I want it cleaner than when we got there. So rake everything, everything gets leaf blowed, cleaned up nice, all like that. A customer could tell right away that there's a tangible difference. And I think that has really helped us out a lot because the word of mouth, you know, after doing that for maybe the first five or six years, all of a sudden you get this synergy of referrals and repeat customers coming in uh, that really worked well. Um, I say we have a strong presence on social media as well. So we try to put quite a bit up on our Facebook page and Instagram. And then the big thing was our website. So we put a lot of time and effort into that. Really just trying to share information uh, to educate consumers is the big one. So I put a lot of stuff up there that's not, hey, come to Bart's and use us all the time. It's just give you the knowledge to make sound decisions or identify some things in your yard or educate you on it so that we want to be the industry leader in our area. So that that's probably our number one marketing thing that works the best is, is just the website itself right now and the newsletter that goes out all the time. What's your website address? It is bartstreeservice.com. I see you were one of the main sponsors for Beer Fest and Summerfest over with the Bethel Chamber of Commerce. Yes. Do you find that sort of corporate and local sponsorship to also be a good way to get your name out? Very much so. And that's where I used to spend more money on advertising type uh, things. I've taken all of that now and it's really just community outreach type things. So we do a lot of stuff with schools and churches uh, and charitable organizations in the area. You know, it's just great to give back to the community and help out. A byproduct is that you know there's corporate branding there that people see us, so that helps us a lot. But I think you build a, a strong relationship with the community. You know, that's just invaluable. Well, thank you very much for your time. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Bethel Business Podcast. For more information about the Bethel Chamber of Commerce, call 203 743 6500 or visit discoverbethelct.com. If you run a business in the Bethel area and are interested in being a guest on this podcast, contact Smith Douglas Associates at 203-628-2606.